Good morning, family of God. For the last couple of months, we have enjoyed studying scriptures connected to the liturgical seasons of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany. And in February, we will return to our study of the Gospel of Luke, which, Luke, has, taken which has taken most of our time on Sunday mornings for the last year or so. But we're taking a little detour over the next few weeks because as we were praying and thinking, many of our leaders sense that God may want us to start this year, 2024, with a particular emphasis. So we're going to have a little sermon series here on the topic of spiritual generations. So you got two key words today and for the next several weeks. Everybody say generations. And the idea of generations is reminding us of something that many cultures are good at remembering, but maybe particularly in America, we might be prone to forget, which is that we are not merely isolated individuals. We have families. We're connected to communities. And our individual identity is woven inextricably in a fabric with other human beings, including human beings who live before us and who will come after us and the choices that they made affect us for good and for ill. We have ancestors. Aren't you glad God gave you a mama and a grandmother and all sorts of ancestors? And if Jesus doesn't come back soon, which, by the way, I would love for Jesus to come back today. Wouldn't you like for Jesus to come back today? But if he doesn't come back soon, not only do we have ancestors, but there will be people after us who are affected by our lives and our decisions. They may not know our names, but our decisions and the way that we live will affect them. So that the idea of generations is reminding us that we're woven together. Our lives are woven together with humans that come before us and humans that go after us. But we're talking about spiritual generations. So everybody say spiritual. We want to think about the idea of generations in a spiritual way. Not only do you have biological Parents and grandparents and great grandparents, but you have spiritual ancestors. Aren't you glad to be heir of a legacy of faith? Perhaps your biological family is also comprised of a legacy of many generations of faith. For many of you, you have experienced that blessing. If you had a praying grandmother who has blessed you more than she knows, can you say amen? But some of you came to know Christ and your physical family before you didn't know Christ. The generations before you immediately may have been marked by a lot of pain or trauma or family brokenness. But one of the realities of the gospel is that when you trust in Jesus, you get grafted into a new spiritual family. So that you also have a rich legacy of many generations of spiritual ancestors. And some of you have physical descendants already. They're popping out around church lately at a rapid rate. And so some more to come soon. Thank God for children. But all of us have the opportunity to have spiritual children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who can come after us as we do what Reed was leading us to pray about in a minute. Everybody say, make disciples. But today... We're not focused on how to make disciples. We're not focused on the mechanics of spiritual mentoring or something like that. 
Because when we talk about spiritual generations, the first thing we want to talk about is the fact that God is a God who has a purpose to love and redeem his people and that that purpose works its way out in the world generationally. Or to put that a different way, God is in the business of redeeming generations. And your life is a part of that story of God redeeming generations. And if we learn to think biblically about that reality, it can give us a lot of hope and a lot of encouragement. So that's why we're in the book of Exodus today. I love the book of Exodus. This book is a book about the liberating Lord who comes to his enslaved people and sets them free by his great power. He overthrows Pharaoh and brings the people out of slavery and and uh, parts the Red Sea. Don't you love the story? Somebody wants to go home and watch Prince of Egypt tonight. Amen. It's a good story. And, and uh, he parts the Red Sea so they can be led out of slavery into the promised land. And he judges their enemies. And then Miriam, the sister of Moses, pulls out her tambourine and, and sings all sorts of songs to praise God. But we're going to that book because one of the things that happens in that book, which is so crucial for understanding the whole Bible, is that God reveals himself to be a redeeming, liberating God who is graciously, patiently at work bringing healing to generations. That's what we're going to talk about today. So before we go any further, I want to invite you to bow your head with me one more time. And I want to ask for the Holy Spirit to speak to us in a special way. And then I want to dive into these thoughts from Exodus 34 in a way that I pray will be really healing and transforming and will renew vision for us today. So let's bow our heads. Our Lord, this morning, we give you thanks for being a God who has always been at work in history. And Lord, where there is grief and pain and trauma and damage in the background of generations behind us, we grieve and we lament and we ask for your healing this morning. But we're also thankful that we have spiritual ancestors like Abraham and Sarah, like Moses and Miriam, Jesus and Mary, so many others who have handed on to us a great legacy of faith. We thank you for their examples. We thank you that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help me to speak what you want me to speak today and help us to hear your words, that we would leave here with a sense of healing and encouragement and a very greatly deepened understanding of the significance of our lives from the perspective of your purpose of redeeming generations on the earth. That we would be encouraged and we'd be equipped. So bless us in these few moments we have together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book of Exodus, the whole book's good, but there's two moments that are especially powerful and that are crucial for understanding the rest of the Bible in which God reveals himself in a powerful way. The first of those is in chapter three. It's the moment where God appears to Moses and it's the burning bush moment. You remember the story. Moses, the shepherd, 
sees a bush that is on fire, but it's not getting consumed. And he starts walking up to look at it and he hears a voice saying, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. He takes off his sandals and God speaks to him and says to him, I'm sending you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Everybody say, let my people go so that they can worship me. And Moses is scared. And Moses makes all kinds of excuses. And God tells Moses that he is going to give Moses power. And God is going to flex. And he's going to humble Pharaoh. And he's going to make Pharaoh let his people go. And Moses asks the question, when I go and say I was sent to say let my people go. And they ask me, who sent you? What should I say? It's a question about the name of God. And God responds to Moses by saying, I am who I am. Say to them, I am has sent me to you. This is a powerful moment in the history of the world in which God is revealing himself as the uncreated creator, the source of all things. He's not dependent on anything for his existence or his life, but he gives existence, being and life. To everything else. He is unchanging and eternal and faithful. He is I am who I am. And then he says the name that they're going to call him by, which is the name Yahweh, which basically means he is evoking God's self-identification as I am who I am. So when you see in your Bible the word Lord in all caps, it's rendering, translating this word Yahweh. He is who he is. And Moses goes And he speaks the name of the Lord. And we know this story that God keeps his promises and sets the people free. And when they get out of slavery and now they're wandering in the wilderness, God feeds them. God gives them water to drink. God takes care of them. Church family, will God take care of you? Everybody say he's faithful. But though God is faithful, the people are not. And they keep grumbling. They keep complaining. When Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord, some of you remember what the people were doing down at the bottom of the mountain. They get nervous because it takes Moses a little while to come back. And they get his brother Aaron say, make for us a golden calf. They forsake the Lord and break pretty much all ten of the Ten Commandments while they're being delivered by God. They make a golden calf. They start worshiping the calf. And it's frantic. Uh, it's there's a lot of pagan perverse stuff that happens at the bottom of that mountain. And Moses comes down the mountain and he sees it and he's grieved and he's enraged and he breaks the tablets and God's wrath is also kindled and there's a discipline. There's a punishment. In fact, God threatens to wipe the people out. But Moses, inspired, of course, by God himself, prays that God will spare the people and God hears and God has mercy. And Moses, in chapter thirty three, Praise God, don't wipe us out and don't leave us. We don't want to go from here unless your presence is with us. And God says, "Okay, I'm going to stick with my people. I'm going to be faithful to them. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. And then Moses prays a bold prayer. He says, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. Moses wants God. And God says, "Okay, I'm going to pass before you. You can't look at my face because nobody can look at my face and live. But I'm going to let you see my backside as I pass before you. 
It's a very mysterious passage. What did Moses see? What is God talking about? God doesn't have a body, but he's teaching Moses something very important. We'll come back to this idea. And the text you just heard from chapter 34 is about God doing just that. He says to Moses, cut two new stones. Come back up the mountain just by yourself. Don't bring anybody else with you, because if you do, my holy wrath is going to consume them for the sin that they just committed. But you come alone. And then Moses goes up the mountain. It says the Lord passed before him. That's the fulfillment of what was said in chapter 33. He passes before so that Moses can look at his backside But Moses doesn't describe what he sees because what he sees is so overwhelmed by what he hears. And God, just like at the burning bush, speaks his name, but then he speaks more. He reveals his heart, his identity, his attributes. The key verses are verses six and seven. Let's read those again. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God begins by again repeating that name, Yahweh, Yahweh. He who is, I am who I am. God is reminding them he's the uncreated creator, the eternal, unchanging source of all life and being. But then he goes on to describe his heart. And in the rest of this passage, God essentially names seven attributes, seven attributes of God. And by the way, we could easily have a seven week sermon series diving into each of those attributes. We don't have time for that today. But I'm going to walk you through those attributes and just give you a couple of sentences on each one that you can write down and ponder for the rest of your life. First, God says he is merciful. Everybody say merciful. I'm not going to do a bunch of fancy Hebrew stuff with you today. For each of these attributes, I'm just going to try to describe to you. If you were to go study that word in the Bible and go look at what God does when he's showing himself to be that, what does he do? And if you're going to go look at what God's mercy looks like in the Bible, here's what you would find. When people are hurting, God cares about them. When people are in trouble, God cares about them. And he comes near to them with love to heal and to help. Church, you ever been hurting and God came near to you? That's his mercy. He doesn't just do this for innocent sufferers. He does it for guilty sufferers, too. Here's a more vulnerable question. You ever been hurting and it was totally your fault? I've been there a lot. And God's saying, I'm merciful, which means even if you're hurting and it's totally your fault, you can cry out to God. He will come near to heal and to help. Then he says he's gracious. He's gracious. Everybody say gracious. That means he's a giving God. He gives and he gives and he gives. He's generous. He's kind. He treats us far better than we deserve because he loves us. He's a gracious God. Sometimes in our culture, I think just in our pride, we say, I just want what I deserve. But if you stop to think about it, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? If you just got what you deserved, you can't earn your life or your being. 
You can't start doing anything that deserves anything to you already exist. Your existence is a gift, right? But God says, I'm gracious. I'm a giving God. And I give not just what you deserve, but far beyond what you deserve. That's my heart. It says he's slow to anger. That's why the Israelites did not immediately get consumed. Everybody say slow to anger. Even when right after he delivered them from slavery and provided everything they need and they totally rebelled against him, he was patient. He's kind. He gives more chances. He teaches gently. Even after we make the same mistake for the 500th time, he keeps teaching gently. He helps us clean up our messes. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. That's the next one. And then faithfulness. Those two go together, though. Can't separate them. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Everybody say steadfast love. To say that God loves us means a lot of things. It means he wills what is good for us. Sometimes we doubt that. We know God has a plan, but we're nervous about his plan because we're not sure it's the best. But to say God loves you means he always wills the best for you. He wills your life. He wills your joy. He desires your flourishing. And at the heart of it, that means he desires for you to know him and enjoy a relationship with him. He wants you. He wants friendship with you because he loves you. And he initiated this relationship and he's committed to it. And he loves us not in a fickle way, which is here today and gone tomorrow, but he loves us steadfastly with a persevering love. He has bound himself to his people in a covenant. These words, steadfast love and faithfulness are both connected to the idea of covenant. So everybody say covenant. He has made promises to his people. He has bound himself to his people and his people to himself in a covenant. And he is absolutely committed never to stop loving us. He will keep loving us with an almighty, indestructible love until his purposes for us are fulfilled and we are perfectly united with him. He's faithful. Everybody say faithful. Means he's consistent and reliable and true. And he always keeps his promises. And then it goes on to describe this through his forgiveness. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. I love what one commentator I read this week observed on this passage that God uses three of the Old Testament's big words for sin here. Iniquity, transgression and sin. And the point is God forgives all kinds of sin and all kinds of sinners. If you're here today and your sin is pride, God wants to forgive you. If it's greed, God wants to forgive you. If it's hatred and bitterness in your heart, God wants to forgive you. If you're feeling ashamed of your sexual brokenness, God wants to forgive you. If you sin like a Pharisee, God wants to forgive you. If you sin like a tax collector, God wants to forgive you. There's no limit to his desire to forgive and heal and restore. But lest we think that all this talk about mercy and grace and forgiveness means God is a moral pushover, he goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the sins of the children on of the fathers on the children, children's children, the third and fourth generation. Now, we're going to come back to that generational thing for a second. But the seventh attribute here described as visiting iniquities is a little more tricky to summarize. You could use the word justice. Everybody say justice. But in the Bible, God's justice has a lot more to, to it than just judging sin. 
It's about setting things right. But the point here is that God is a God of just judgments who will not allow evil to triumph in his world. He is not morally indifferent. He hates evil. He defeats evil. He's committed to overthrowing evil. In fact, his love for us will not allow him to leave us languishing in a world marred by wickedness forever. He will overcome it. So he is a God of justice as well as a God of mercy. That's seven attributes. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's a God of steadfast love. He's slow to anger. He's a God of faithfulness. He's forgiving. He's a God of just judgments. Now, all of these attributes find their perfect expression, of course, in Jesus, in the person of Jesus. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. If you just look at the life of Jesus and how he relates to his people, you could just start going through this list and find every one of these attributes beautifully and perfectly displayed in his life. As a matter of fact, coming back to the theme of God's backside when he passes before Moses. Martin Luther spoke frequently of the posterior day, the the backside of God, and he would connect it to the cross. For example, in his famous Heidelberg Disputation, Martin Luther said, the man who perceives the visible rearward parts of God as seen in suffering and the cross deserves to be called a theologian. What did he mean by that? He meant, look, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to see all of these attributes, the, you can see them displayed in the beauty and majesty of his works of creation, but the place that they're perhaps revealed most clearly is in the ugly spectacle of the cross. Here is where you find God's just judgments poured out on all of our sin and yet us forgiven and redeemed by mercy and grace because God himself has borne our sin and absorbed all of its consequences. Isn't Jesus awesome? But actually, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that we don't just see God's backside in Christ. Think about 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which says, For God, who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus We see all these attributes most fully revealed. Now, some of you might be thinking, I thought we were talking about spiritual generations. You might be wondering how all this connects. What does this have to do with spiritual generations, you ask? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I would love to talk about that question. Look again at verse 6 and 7. It says, when it's talking about a steadfast love, it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Everybody say thousands. And and the question is, thousands of what? Well, if you read the verse um, in context, I think it makes clear. You could say thousands of people. You could say thousands of years. But the context here is a parallelism with what comes right after it, about the third and fourth generation. In other words, it's thousands of generations. It's picking up on a similar passage in Exodus 25 through 6. But this phrase... This verse will get picked up over and over throughout the scriptures. And very often it will say the word generations. Let me give you a couple of examples. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 7, 9 through 10 says this. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And repays to their faith, face those who hate him by destroying him. 
It's a quotation of Exodus 34, 6 through 7, and it says thousand generations. Or you could think about Psalm 105, 8. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. So everybody say a thousand generations. Although actually it says thousands. So my sermon title, if you haven't written one down yet, you might have made up your own by this point since I haven't told you. But it's thousands of generations. The New Living Translation gets the sense of verse 7 right when it translates the opening phrase, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. There's a comparison here. Blessing, steadfast love on thousands of generations, but visiting the iniquities on the third and fourth generation. Now we've got to ask the difficult question, what does it mean when it talks about God visiting the sins of the fathers on children to the third and fourth generation? Ezekiel 18 is a chapter, if you, if you want to think about that question, I encourage you to read this week, you can read the whole chapter. And what's happening in Ezekiel 18 is the children of Israel are being disciplined in exile, and they're wrestling with God, and some of them are beginning to shake their fists at God and saying, our parents sin, and you're mad at us for our parents sin. You're punishing us, you're counting us guilty for something we never did. And God responds to that. And he says a lot of things that are very clarifying, including, for example, I'll just read verses 20 through 21. It says, when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. What Ezekiel is saying in those verses and throughout Ezekiel chapter 18 is, I am not holding you guilty for what your parents and grandparents did. That's not what's happening. If you repent of that generational sin, I will forgive you and restore you. On a, then we gotta ask, what does it mean then? What is Exodus 34 7 talking about? And I think this takes us back to the beginning of the sermon. Humans are not isolated individuals. We are communal beings. Our humanity is interconnected. We are knit together in such a way that anything affecting one of us will, in fact, affect many of us now and throughout time. That means that my sin and God's punishment of my sin will have an impact on people besides me. That's a hard thought, isn't it? Does it make you want to not sin, though? There's various examples you can think of in the Bible. Just take Daniel for a second. Remember Daniel? Daniel in the lion's Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was a godly, righteous man. God was pleased with Daniel. God blessed Daniel. God was with Daniel. God did not punish Daniel. But Daniel lived in exile because of choices his grandparents made. God punished a previous generation and he's still affected by it. There's many examples like this. Let's just make it real because I know some of y'all are starting to think about grandpa right now. And I know that some very painful things about family histories could be coming up. But I just want to say, okay, so grandpa sinned. I don't know what it is in your family. Perhaps grandpa was unfaithful to grandma. He had an affair. And ran away with another woman, abandoning the family. 
Let's be really clear. God is not punishing you for grandpa's sin. That is not happening. You do not need to live under the shame of grandpa's sin. Aren't you glad, church? You don't need to live under the shame of grandpa's sin, nor does God condemn you for it. And let's just be real, because sometimes when Christians start talking about generational blessings and curses, we get a little superstitious. If you stub your toe or get appendicitis, it is not because God is smiting you for grandpa's sin. That's not what's happening. But grandpa's sin did have a big impact on the emotional and relational fabric of your family in a way that does affect you, even if you're not aware of it. There are generational wounds. We tend to repeat certain sins. The devil tries to exploit our wounds. And even at a physiological level, generational traumas that you don't even know about can be written into your body. There are generational wounds. So when God in his perfect justice and mercy responds fittingly to grandpa's sin, though he does not blame you or hold you accountable, it is the nature of human beings that there will be unavoidable shockwaves that spread out beyond grandpa. Now, that's a heavy thought, but let's make this observation now. This is a good time to intervene. The number thousand is a lot bigger than the number four. Did you hear that? And if the number 1,000 is a lot bigger than the number four, that means the number thousands is a lot, a lot bigger than the number four. You tracking with me on this? What, what the second part of that is, or the first part rather, is saying steadfast love to thousands of generations is saying God's commitment to love his people steadfastly over the course of generations, is much stronger than the natural consequences of our good and bad choices. One of the practical applications of that is this. If you are doing the work of breaking negative generational patterns, as many of you are, or healing from generational wounds in your family, as many of you are, God is with you in that work. And he's with you with Mercy and grace and steadfast love and omnipotent power. Providing supernatural help, not only to heal you, but to heal people that will be born 400 years from now. Not only to bless you, but to bless people that you won't meet till heaven. God is at work. His steadfast love to thousands of generations means that when a person enters into a covenant relationship with the Lord God, God pours out blessings and love on that person that will continue to have ripple effects in the world far beyond the lifespan of that person. So that the blessing will be experienced by people, by your children, grandchildren, the 25th generation, the 26th generation will experience profound benefits by God's supernatural grace because of what he did in your life. And he said thousands, so that means like the 453rd generation, the 728th generation. I'm just making up these numbers. I did write them down, but it doesn't matter what I wrote down in my notes. You could just say any number. <laughs> you can think about this, for example, in the generations of the family of Abraham described in Genesis there are generational sins passed on in that family. Abraham lies about Sarah to protect himself in a way that exposes her to danger. 
And then Abraham's son, Isaac, lies about his wife, Rebecca, to protect himself in a way that exposes him to danger. And then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, his name basically means liar, and he lies and lies and lies all the time. Abraham and Sarah play favorites, and that leads to strife between Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Rebekah play favorites, and that leads to strife between Jacob and Esau. Jacob plays favorites, and so the brothers of Joseph almost kill him and then sell him into slavery. You see what I'm talking about, generational ripple effects of sin to the fourth generation? But that's not the only thing that was getting passed on, church. Abraham trusted God. So God blessed Abraham. And Abraham taught Isaac to trust God. And Isaac taught Jacob to trust God. And Jacob taught his kids to trust God. So that by the fourth generation, you get somebody like Joseph, who's a person of such profound faith and integrity, has a heart of mercy and forgiveness, so that not only does he forgive his brothers in a way that brings hope and redemption to his family, but God works through him to preserve the whole nation and to save nations around him. That's just the fourth generation. But the blessings of Abraham are still rippling out into the world today. Let's just take one verse of scripture. Galatians 3.29 And now that you belong to Christ... You are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham who brings the Abrahamic blessing to everybody who trusts in Jesus. What does that mean? Some of you in VBS or Sunday school growing up sung the song, Father Abraham. You remember that song? If you've tried to use it as a teacher, that's the moment you lose control of the class, right? Because by the end of the song, everybody's dancing around all crazy. And it was 10 years into dancing around crazy, singing that song before I realized this song has a point. And the point is this. When you trust in Jesus, you're tied into a generational legacy that goes all the way back to Abraham of blessing and salvation that will continue forever into the future. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a good day to celebrate a great legacy and to remember one of the great moral leaders in the history of the church. All the parades got canceled because it is very cold outside. So you got to watch Selma or read a book or something like that. But I was thinking about this in relation to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life because for many people, he's a, he's a figure, he's a persona that you get quotes and put him on a meme one day a year. But he was, in fact, a human being. And Martin Luther King Jr. had a father. Martin Luther King Sr. Although he wasn't born that, his, he was born Michael King in 1899 in a little rural community in Georgia. His w- mother and his father had experienced slavery And that profound suffering that they experienced um, had shaped both of them. And his mother, and little Michael King, in, in the life of his mother, that experience has forged a profound courage and a profound faith in God. This is a woman who knew the Lord and knew how to pray. And his father, it had produced some of those qualities, but also... The profound experience of oppression and racial violence that he had experienced, he, he had a difficult time handling and coped with it in a number of 
destructive waves. He was an exploited sharecropper who had been set free, but was still experiencing profound exploitation in the Jim Crow South. And he coped with alcoholism and he coped with all sorts of things and eventually became a very angry and abusive man. So that little Michael King walked walked away from the house and walked out of that little rural community where his father was a sharecropper all the way to Atlanta. But when he walked away, he carried his mother's faith with him. And when he got to Atlanta, he began working really hard with his hands, but he also went back to school with kids 10 years younger than him because he was committed to learn how to read. He was committed to become a leader, and he had learned from his mother the power of God's word, and he felt a calling to preach God's word. So he worked really hard to learn how to read and then to master the Bible and to hide it in his heart. And he went around preaching to all sorts of churches in rural Georgia and then eventually became the pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, which was perhaps the most uh, powerful and influential black-owned institution in this city, and began to have tremendous influence. But his goal and his heart was never just about changing his life or his family. He wanted to bring redemption to the nation. He wanted to bring change. He wanted to see Jim Crow end so that the sins of the nation that had hurt his father so much would not be continued in the generations of his grandchildren. I wish we could say that none of his father's flaws were passed on to him, but that isn't true. He had some of his father's same struggles, but he also had a lot of faith. So that little Michael King Jr. grew up in a family where he was constantly hearing about the power of God's word to save and to change and the power of prayer to change history. And then eventually Michael King Sr. changed his name to Martin Luther King to evoke the legacy of the German, the wild German reformer who thought he could turn the whole world upside down just by teaching the Bible. He said he thought we're going to change the world through this. And then Martin Luther King Jr. grew up in that household under that legacy. And some of his father's and grandfather's flaws were passed on to him. He was a real human being who had some serious flaws, but he's also a man who knew God. And he had a radical moral courage and a radical commitment to Fighting oppression with justice, but doing it in a way that was shaped by the love of Jesus that had the power to overthrow hate. And he was willing to die for his convictions for the redemption of his enemies. Aren't you glad he was? And the ripple effects of his life, not only can they continue for a thousand years, but they've already spread throughout the world. But God intervened generationally. And that can happen in our families, too. I'm almost done, but I just want you to think before we leave here today about some of the implications of what we've been saying about God for you and for your life. Okay, my sin can have ripple effects that touch three or four generations. How long is a generation? Biologically, 20 years, 30 years, let's say 25, so the math is easy. That means a hundred years from now, people could be hurting because of my sin. There's a practical implication here, church. Try not to sin. Don't sin. Hate evil. Fear God. And this makes me so thankful for the gospel of Jesus because on the cross, Jesus absorbed the curse. So the power of our sin can be broken and set free and it doesn't have all of its effects. If you're happy about that, you really should say amen at this point, church.
I'm so glad that the curse of my sin has been absorbed through Jesus. But now I want to talk to you about the really good and beautiful reality. The work you are doing right now, perhaps to break generational patterns in your own family. Or to just teach your kids to walk with God. Isn't parenting awesome and incredibly hard? Oh my goodness. It's awesome and incredibly hard. But even if you're not a biological parent, the work that you're doing to share the gospel and to mentor and to teach God's word to people in the next generation to make disciples. What we're saying is that work, the small faithfulness day by day, can be taken up by God to impact thousands of generations. Now, let's just do the math for a second ago. We just said that biological generations may be 25 years. So a thousand generations is like 25,000 years. Have you just thought about the math of this verse for a second? Can you imagine 25,000 years from right now? This is the year 2000. Two is less than 25. I'm doing a lot of math up here today. I know it's, it's, some of us just got back to school, but 25,000 years. I was trying to imagine that today. If Jesus doesn't come back, don't you? I really hope he comes back before 25,000 years from now. But there is that verse about like a thousand years is like a day with him. So 25,000 is still less than a month. I'm just trying to wrap my mind around all that. If Jesus tarries and you make disciples, what could that mean? It could mean in the year 27,000. You with me on the math here? There might be people who live in a colony on the moon teaching theology because of your faithfulness. I'm just imagining here. Work with me. Maybe some, somebody in that moon colony is writing beautiful music for the glory of God on some instrument that hasn't been invented yet. Maybe they're visiting lonely moon na- neighbors with moon soup to bring the warmth and comfort of Jesus. Maybe they're contending for social justice in the Galactic Senate or writing redemptive historical novels about the turbulent, almost forgotten years of the 21st century and Odomini. I don't know what they're doing. Some of you all stopped taking me seriously when I said the Galactic Senate. But here's, here's the reality. I'm saying all this stuff with my tongue only partially in my cheek because... Either Jesus is going to come back before then, or he's not. And you and I can't imagine either one of those realities. Right? Jesus could come back today or a hundred years from now. Jesus comes back, raises the dead, transforms the whole cosmos. All people who have ever existed are resurrected again. Those who have trusted in the Lord are resurrected with immortal bodies to reign with him in a new creation. Can you picture that? I can't picture that. Or maybe he waits a long time. And if he waits a long time before he comes back, then human history is going to keep going forward. Technological and cultural changes are going to continue to happen in ways that we cannot possibly anticipate. People that live 150 years from now, if you told them about today, they would think you're you're preaching a weird science fiction sermon, right? But with all those unimaginable unknowns about the future, God's word tells us some things. Jesus Christ will be with his people until the end of history. The gates of hell will not prevail over the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
And from our text today, the Lord God pours out steadfast love on all who trust in him, including you, in a way that will have ripple effects that can spread out to unimaginable distances to touch thousands of generations. We need to understand this is not just talking about the unforeseen possible consequences of your good choices. It's talking about God's commitment to do something supernatural through his people. This is not a text primarily about the power of your choices to affect the future, though it's a little bit about that. It's a text that's primarily about God's commitment to love you and those who come after you with an invincible and extravagant love beyond all human reckoning. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is humanity's hope. And this hope for the future means several things. Parents in here that get tired. Let's just testify. Parents, you get tired. It can be exhausting and it can feel sometimes a little hopeless. And it can feel like all the dreams that I have for my life are getting taken up by the fact that I have no energy because I'm spending it all parenting. And what the text is saying to you is all that energy that you're putting into parenting is doing something way bigger than whatever you're dreaming about. Because God is working through your family to unleash blessings that are big beyond your reckoning. What if you don't have biological children? Well, listen, part of the message of the gospel is you don't have to have biological children to be fruitful generationally. By the power of the Holy Spirit, as you just help people walk with Jesus, God is unleashing power through your life that can bless future generations beyond your reckoning. So as we bring our thoughts back to earth in the year 2024... Here's what the text means, or here's some of the implications of it. Just make it your top priority to walk with Jesus and help people walk with Jesus. And as you do this, Almighty God will be working in and through you to redeem generations. God will turn your little acts of daily faithfulness into something big beyond your capacity to imagine. Because of his grace and mercy, steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we praise you because you are faithful throughout generations. We thank you for the legacy that of those of those who have gone before us. And I pray that today and for the next few weeks, your Holy Spirit would be renewing in us hope and urgency and excitement about the blessing and the privilege that it is to seek you and to pass on a legacy of faith to the next generation. Lord, we want to pray now for the children growing up in this church. We pray that they and their children and their grandchildren would walk with God and you would use them. To shake nations. Lord, we pray also for children and youth and adults in our community who do not know you. Would this be the generation in which you would intervene with redemptive power? And would you use us by the power of your Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel to my neighbors in a way that, and our neighbors, Lord, in a way that can be bringing healing to many generations for your glory. I pray that you would rekindle our desire to know you and to make disciples. And that... For endless ages as we worship you, 
and give you all the glory, we'd also be able to celebrate the mighty things that you did beyond anything we could have asked for or anticipated. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.